house. No, the right no, house. I did it. Get we want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. There was a hole in this family, and I filled it. They're all grown up now. You think because you screwed up once, you, know you don't get a second chance? Hey, why did you walk out on my daughter? Our daughter. Julie hates you. That may be. And I have to live with that every day of my life, but now you have to live with the pain you caused. It really doesn't matter if the kids love you or not. It's not their job to love you. It's your job to love them. Call in sick. Go to the old neighborhood. Sometimes a girl just needs her mother. Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast shellacking our anger into a laundry room art project. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we're here to perform the autopsy. Yeah. You are so happy about the word autopsy there. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, (laughs) I I have no joke for this, but I am your host, Chris (laughs) Pyle. I am here as always, tending bar and hooting and hollering for the lady of the hour, my co-host, Joe Reed. Oh, my, what did she call him? What did she call uh, Ben Platt's character, Daniel? She's like my beloved Daniel or something like that. (laughs) It's canon that that character is gay, right? I mean, those hips don't lie. (laughs) I guess I guess because he's played by Ben Platt too, we have this like eternal like, you know, he is definitely, but nobody's actually said it in concrete terms. So I guess that fits. right, 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 right. I mean, it because I'm sure we'll get into this, but like Ricky's gay son, like that whole tense relationship. I was you keep waiting for it in this moment where he's like, oh well, my boyfriend, and then like schools her somehow. I don't know, or she's like, oh wait, people can just be gay. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, uh-huh. that that was a thread that could have been tied off in a way that would have been fun. I mean, it goes into well, we'll get into it. I have an observation about this movie that like ties into that, but Absolutely. let's lead up to it. So, um, for all of those like Ben Platt stands out there <laughs> that know what we're talking about, let me. Uh, for those not Ben Platt stands, uh, we are talking this week about Ricky and the Flash. Um, it is directed by Jonathan Demi, written by Goddess Diablo Cody, starring yes. other goddess Meryl Streep, her Sophie's Choice co-star Kevin Klein, her daughter Mamie Gummer, um, Jesse's the Jesse's girl coveter Rick Springfield, <laughs> Jesse's girls guy. Yes, uh, the Jesse's girls guy. Uh, Rick Springfield, National Treasure, Audra McDonald, the aforementioned Ben Platt, Sebastian Stan, Nick Westrate. Um, Ricky and the Flash is like a family-like drama that we will get into in our 60-second plot description. But it's also another one of those like noted brands of Meryl has the first weekend of August movies from 2015. Yes. Oh, very much so. And like this was a reli- as reliable a you know, a movie tradition as there had been in the 2000s, where from Devil Wears Prada to Julie and Julia to 
Hope Springs, which I know was not seen as a success, but I really like that movie. So in my mind, that movie is also a success. This movie also, to me, I remember the first still of Meryl in character as Ricky and like the guitar and the braid and like the like mood lighting behind her. That was one of the first times I remember like, oh, Twitter as a culture is like we're all going to collectively freak out about something for about a half hour. Yeah. And posting it like that picture is one of my first memories of that happening, at least for me. Um and then I remember being of... very, very excited with that first trailer also, where yeah. I was like, oh, I'm, I was like planning my like summer around when I was going to be able to see Ricky and the Flash. I was very, very excited. Yeah, very that, very that. There's a whole lot of things that made us excited about this movie that we will definitely get into. But before we do that, Joseph, yes. how would you like to give our lovely listeners a 60 second plot description? I will give it my best effort. Okay, well, you um, hop on that plane to Indianapolis and <clears throat> just do the best you can, gal. All right. Um, are you ready? I am ready. All right. Your 60-second plot description begins now. All right, so Meryl Streep is playing a character named Linda Brummel, but her, she's best known, and she prefers to be known as her stage name, Ricky Rendazzo, who fronts the the bar band Ricky and the Flash for, in um, this little bar in Tarzana, whose name I can't remember, but it's fine. So at some point, so she's sort of like, you know, making ends meet and kind of, you know, she's not quite making ends meet because she's broke and she's working at fake Whole Foods. And she gets a call from Indianapolis from the family that she sort of left behind. 30 that her, seconds. Oh shit. Her daughter's marriage has ended and she's having a breakdown and she's got to come home. So she like very reluctantly returns to Indianapolis and she finds out that her daughter had actually tried to kill herself. And so she and her daughter, played by Mamie Gummer, um, have this sort of like tense coming to terms and and this is all in the middle of the movie and at some point in the middle of the movie it's all sort of fits and then audrey mcdonald who's a stepmother comes home and she's like hey ricky get the hell out of here and but it's like it's more complicated than that and then ricky goes home and then she gets an invite to her son's wedding and she comes back to the son's wedding and she sends a spring song and it's so good yay wow okay Um, first of all the name of that bar is the salt well salt salt well yes Okay, I, I almost said Salt Lake, and I was like, that's not right, and I'm not going to say it. No. I knew it was Salt She escaped, well, she didn't escape Salt Lake, but she escaped the Great Lakes. Right, yes. She left the Midwest. Yes. It's interesting to me that all of this movie takes place in what we would call Red America, right? Yes. Like, it's in very, like, as red as California gets, it, you know, it feels like that's the little niche that Ricky has found herself in, in Tarzana. And then the going home, which I always, whenever I think of the movie, I always, you always assume that she's going home to, like, Connecticut. Or, like, whatever, you know what I mean? Just, like, fancy, nice, too fancy for her. But you forget that, like, no, this is, um, like, housing development Indianapolis, like, suburban very very antiseptic sort of you it's still the contrast to what ricky was sort of running away from and what she ran to but all of it takes place in traditional red america in a way that i don't think you could have now after the election, no, after the 2016 election that was it all takes a different really character really striking rewatching this movie is uh, it's <laughs> I feel like people kind of rolled their eyes at this about Ricky and the Flash when the movie came out, and now it's a little bit more like, oh, yeah, yeah. You um, get what Diablo Cody is going for in this, in that, like, 
there is more of America that exists within our bubbles and that there can be these sort of complicated, humane stories that happen entirely within what we would call Red State America. And it's... I don't find any of Diablo Cody's intent with this movie insidious, but it comes across as much more insidious now since the Trump election, because all I'm doing watching this movie is being like, I love Ricky. Oh, God, she probably voted for Trump. Oh, God, how many of these people in this movie, you know, actually did vote for Trump? Like Kevin Klein, a rich person in Indiana. Yeah, he probably did. And I would argue even his like white gay son probably voted for Trump. Like, well, I. See, I don't know about the family, but, like, I would argue that this movie, or at least what Diablo Cody is doing, does not try to pacify or forgive any of those things about No, absolutely not. Or, like, gloss over them. I don't know if Jonathan Demme and his approach with the directing of this movie knows really how to handle that aspect of it or at least capture the tone that Diablo Cody is going for. I think if there's problems with this movie, that's largely, unfortunately, the problem, at least for me. Um, Is that you don't think her style and his style get along very well? They should, right? Like, this... That's one of the reasons we were so excited about this movie. It wasn't just another Meryl movie. It was, like, this convergence of a director who would seemingly get what a very specific and like specifically talented screenwriter is doing with Meryl Streep on top of that. And it should all like be very harmonious and like there's something off and the element to this movie that is off to me is unfortunately Jonathan Demi because so much of it is like right in his alley, right? Especially the music portions of this movie, which yeah, I think the most successful and like the most, watchable are like the stretches where it's like you just get these montages of music and these like little blips of like Ricky's growth throughout this time where she's like figuring her shit out at least emotionally yeah um but especially like the politics and like the sharper edges of Diablo Cody's scripts because I don't think I think she's really good at showing a character's like faults and myopias without necessarily forgiving them but still treating them empathically yeah and i don't know if jonathan demi does that as well here as he has done in the past i also really feel like this movie kind of stands in really sharp unfortunate contrast with rachel getting married Mm. which deals with like adjacent themes and is like a shaggier movie it's a lot more like it's it's a lot more taxing of a movie too, but like this feels like he's trying to make it this like brighter, sunnier movie than I think the script could have been. Like if it was if it skewed closer to Rachel getting married, I think this would be absolutely incredible. Well, and I wonder if that's a, a function of the studio. How much of you know this right. is a studio movie as opposed to I forget what Rachel who who made Rachel getting married, which. Uh, that was independent, but it was released by Sony Classics. Thank you. I so this is this is Sony Pictures. This is Sony proper. So I feel like that's maybe, you know, the difference in and of itself. I think I was going to bring that up, too, in that, you know, I don't think you're wrong here necessarily. And I feel like it's not just Jonathan Demi doing this movie. It's Jonathan Demi, the Jonathan Demi that we know from Rachel Getting Married, which was only seven years prior to this movie. Mm-hmm. And the parallels are are there in terms of 
it in in Rachel it was him working off of a script by Jenny Lamette and they their sensibilities seemed to you know if not converge then at least like they they melded in very interesting ways and they made a very interesting movie I think you're right that Rachel feels more tactile it's mu- it's more uncomfortable it's more awkward but it is again this story of this family that was fundamentally broken and that had has since sort of patched itself back together again. Yeah. I think in Rachel, that family is much more fragile. But I think even if you look, if you look at like the husband, like remarried this very warm and easily lovable woman, and Rachel getting married, uh, she was played by Anna Devere Smith. In this movie, she's played by Audra McDonald. Um, but I think the re-entry of the sort of black sheep member of the family at a time when there is, you know a wedding imminent there's like the, Mm -hmm. the parallels are all very much there. And I think this is very much the studio version of that. And I think to constantly compare it to Rachel getting married does do Ricky and the flash a disservice, but it also is a little bit X, you know, it explains a little bit why something does feel slightly off in this movie. My other thing about Ricky though is and this is a thing that gets said about a lot of movies that I feel like is maybe dropped too easily. So I didn't I wanted to make sure I was on solid footing. But like this really does feel like a movie that might have been better off as a TV series. Because mm. I feel like this family feels so the scenes, the individual scenes, especially I'm thinking especially of the scene between Ricky and Maureen, the the stepmother character played by Audra McDonald. Best which scene feels, in the movie. Absolutely. Which feels very rich and very, you know, there's a lot of history there that is both spoken and unspoken. And it feels like there's just a lot more there. But that's the only scene, really, that Audra gets in the movie. She's not, you know, she's seen in a couple, She's there's the kitchen scene that immediately precedes it. And then like you see her at the wedding and you hear her sort of, you know, voiceover when she, when Meryl reads the letter, but right. That is her voiceover. It's not Meryl reading that note. Okay. Um, Sometimes I like imagine that it's one way or another. I just imagine Audra McDonald's voice just sort of floating (laughs) in in and out of my head as you go about your life. It's like stranger than fiction, but with me and Audra McDonald, it's the whole thing. Um, And so it's, it feels strange that there's so much, you know, so much to that scene, and it's it's her really only scene. I also think of her relationships with her two sons, even her relationship with Julie, Julie played by mm-hmm. Mamie Gummer, where we don't get a sense of what Julie was like before the breakdown. So I think sometimes in that, in the end, in the third act, when we see sort of Julie take her confidence steps forward and stuff like that, it's tough to tell, like, what the dynamic was. Was she uptight before this was she sort of a little bit of a wilder person why did her husband break up with her why did he leave her mm-hmm. like that kind of thing but i, I think kind it's... of appreciate that about the movie though because it feels honest in like ricky is so removed from everything like i appreciate that there's like a lack of closure i like that like there are these everyone else is kind of these known and unknown entities and i think that like helps us prevent like that distance between us and Ricky because there's a lot about Ricky that it's like we don't want to empathize with and yet we still do and that's what Diablo Cody does so well but like I kind of like that there's a lack of resolution and kind of lack of a point of entry with these characters like 
I kind of like that prickliness to this movie because it needs it where it can get it because it's so like glossy. I think that works with Julie. I don't think it works with the sons. I think the fact that we see the two sons so briefly once at that very contentious dinner that they all go to. And then again at the wedding and it feels like, like Sebastian Stan plays the youngest and it's like, you don't really know what relationship he ever had with his mother because we, you know, he was the youngest when she left and whatever. And it all feels kind of, I don't know. I feel like I don't have any sort of deep feeling. And then with Adam, the oldest played by Nick Westrate, I will say Nick Westrate, who has fantastic taste in podcasts. If I say so myself, love you, Nick. I, I wish I want more out of that. I don't want it to just be this sort of like, you know, gay son sniping at the at the dinner table, and then the next thing we see of him, he's just sort of, like, presenting his boyfriend to Ricky, and, like, that's, you know, sort of, like, it's funny in the way that she sort of reacts to that, but I don't know, I just feel like part of me, when you were talking about that Diablo Cody does a very good job of characters who have their faults and were not really asked to forgive or apologize for them, it made me think a lot of United States of Terra, which is a difficult show to talk about in relation to Diablo Cody because we don't know, I still think we still don't know how much of that show was hers and how much became... Jill Soloway. Yes, Jill Soloway. I so never, Jill got, Soloway I never watched up, that show. I need to catch up to it. Oh, so. it's so good. Um, so Jill Soloway sort of takes over that show after the first season, and but I think even in just sort of like the DNA and the roots of that show. I think that's another one that take that depicts this very kind of fundamentally broken family where one person is at fault and kind of picks through the resentments of everybody else in that family in a way that doesn't really ever ask for absolution. And I don't know, it's very similar to this. I think there's a lot of there's a lot at the center of Ricky and the Flash that keeps it from being a great movie or even a very good movie, but it's a movie that I really, really, this was only my second time watching it, but both times I'm watching it, I was fully by the end. I'm like up in my feelings and I'm fully loving it. And it's, you know, because there's a big song and dance thing at the end of a movie, that's going to get me always. But I do Mm -hmm. feel like between Streep and, you know, Mamie Gummer, who I think is great in this movie, I actually think she is, really wonderful in this movie and I think Audra's great and I think the way that Diablo Cody sort of writes these characters makes it really hard not to get wrapped up in their story even if at the center of it there's just some sort of dramatic something that isn't quite clicking yeah I mean I think it's again to the like Jonathan Demi thing and I'm like I love Jonathan Demi so like I hate having this criticism about the movie it's just like it feels like it's this very passive like sanding down the edges of what Diablo Cody has done kind of approach to this movie that like it could have been a little bit more special if it had allowed itself to be a little more bruising of a movie like you know, it's even like some of Meryl's delivery, which I think she's really good in this movie. Like she kind of like does like the Republican things like under her breath a little bit. Like she's afraid to really like, go into it i don't know um but, but i also feel like that like i want more of the jonathan demi of like something wild with this movie or i want the not even just the rachel getting married but like the music scenes are the best but they're still like almost conventional rock and roll scenes in a movie sure and, like, a 
basically a jukebox musical. But I also like, feel I want, like like a stop making sense moment for this movie. But then I look at the way that those scenes at the at the dive bar in Tarzana are filmed, and like it gets so much right. And not, it, this isn't all directing; a lot of it is at a script level too. But whatever, whatever it is, it gets a lot right about the vibe of a bar band in a place like that where it's just sort of like there are only so many places so you end up with a weird little mix of you know ages and demographics in the place and you have the younger people and the older people and the and fact Kiala that like settle and Kiala settle who was just like hang on settle and ben platt both being like in that bar sort of rocking out is really really something okay uh, all right, putting a pin in that for a second, but I just want to finish my thing about the bar. It's just the fact that like the Flash has to do like covers of Bad Romance and get the party started because the young people have been clamoring for younger music feels yeah. so lived in and real. And I, and the the word about this movie is that Diablo Cody didn't base this movie on her mother in law, as some people have said, but got the inspiration to write about a woman, an older woman fronting a bar band from her mother-in-law because her mother-in-law does just that. Um, everything else about the story is, you know, you know, yeah. fictional and whatever, but that feels very real to me. And that feels very authentic to me. I, but getting to um, Ben Platt and Kiala Settle, this is a very, the supporting cast of this movie is very Broadway heavy in a way that feels like when Soderbergh cast everybody in the uh, informant, with comedy people for yeah. like a reason. I don't know. It just feels because it's, it's Ben Platt. It's Audra, uh, Kiala Settle, Nick Westrate, who before I had seen in this movie, Maybe, I had just seen him in, uh, Casa Valentina, that play that had got a bunch of Tony yeah, nominations. Yeah, yeah. Mamie Gummer, who has done theater. Mamie, uh, Julie's, uh, ex-husband in this movie is played by Gabriel Ebert, who had, won something for something very recently, right around that time. And I, God, I'm not going to remember it. Hold on a second. But it just feels like there's, and I mean, I'm sure it just comes down to like the casting director was very familiar with, you know, the theater scene, the New York theater right. scene at the it was time. Probably cast by Telsey. Oh, Gabriel Ebert was also in Casa Valentina. I had seen him in also, uh, Therese Rican, the, uh, Ah, uh, yes. The wasn't Kira, in that? Yes, she was. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did not like it very much. But you know what? That wasn't his fault. So, yeah, there was definitely... Mark Platt is a producer on this movie, so maybe that was something. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it's a really good cast full of a whole bunch of theater folks. Can't, can't not love that. Cannot what did you think of Kevin Klein in this movie? Um, I think he's the most underwritten character. Like, if you remove the pot element of it, I don't know if there's much there there. Right, they Bill find Irwin pot in the freezer and they like, a cameo high. role in this and was already the dad and Rachel getting married and you kind of wish, like, for a Bill Irwin. And I love Kevin Klein. The Bill Irwin scene is very, very funny to me where he plays the fa- a father, a, a divorced dad on a sort of weekend date with his little kid at a donut shop and he gets very annoyed at... Ricky and Julie for speaking so loudly about her like suicide attempt and he tries to shame them and the two of them like turn on him like that gif of Kyle and Kim Richards from the one episode of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills where they're both sort of pointing at him at the same time which I love and then he mentions he's like leaving in a huff and he mentions that his daughter's name is he's like come on journey 
And Julie just goes, ugh, journey. And then Ricky just goes very quietly like, oh, I kind of like that. She's like, it's a great band. (laughs) There's a lot of little lines in this movie like that that like really, you know, really kill me. It's really funny. Almost as if it's written by one of our greatest living screenwriters. Okay, can we talk a little bit about Diablo Cody and the sort of the whole Diablo Cody thing? Sure. So... I don't know what your experience of Juno was at the time, but I remember by the time I had seen it, its initial, because it premiered at what, Toronto? Telluride. Telluride, okay. But like the fall festivals. And so it made such a splash. And then once it started hitting like the general population, the backlash started hitting about how sort of annoyingly over the top the writing was. And. I remember experiencing Juno within that context, and I remember being like, oh my god, yeah, it's so too much. The, You know, the hamburger phone and honest to blog and all that sort of stuff. And, like, I remember then the second time I saw it, I was surprised at how much my opinion had changed and how much it really did feel like a lot of that sort of aggressive overwriting of the dialogue is front loaded in that movie. And it really, really, really calms down in that second half in a way that feels intentional. And the second half of Juno is some of the most like honestly emotional and wonderful stuff. Every scene of Ellen Page and Jennifer Garner together in that movie is spectacular. Spectacular. I say a lot that Jennifer Garner should have gotten an Oscar nomination for that movie, but like, she should have. She maybe should have won. She's so good She's in really that movie. Great. That's a really like, like quintessential Diablo Cody character too, because it's like we're not sure to what degree we're supposed to like this person or yeah. side with this person, and like this person doesn't always behave how we want them to, but we still have a lot of empathy for that character. The upending so the of, of. Go ahead. Well, the upending of expectations in Juno when. We it sort of revealed that like Jason Bateman is not nearly as cool as he has had seemed, and Jennifer Garner is a whole different kind of a person that what than what we had made her out to be. Where the audience and Juno sort of realizes all of that at once is one of the better and more underrated turns of a movie that nobody really talks about because it's not a twist, but it is a twist. It's an emotional twist, and our you know mm-hmm. we're we're you know, thrown for a loop as much as we are in any kind of movie. And it's so effective. And I don't know. I would like to say about the quippiness of that movie. Like, yes, it's, uh, it's a lot when we first saw that movie to deal with and be like, Oh, okay. So this is like, and it was also coming off of like the trend of movies, especially portraying teenagers being incredibly like quippy and witty or like, quotable even in like a napoleon dynamite sense yeah well and buffy had paved that way too on tv absolutely but there is something and i think it's probably even closer to like a buffy if you use that example that you watch that movie now and it's like this feels incredibly authentic to what to how teenagers communicate and how they like avoid their feelings and you know avoid responsibilities or whatever in just like the way they use language well and it's Um, heightened it's like obviously heightened and because of course it's heightened because you're dealing with all of these you know performative teenagers like that's one of the things that i think is great about ellen page's performance as well is it does seem very conscious of when juno is performing that wit and when it is yeah when she's just being herself you know yeah 
So then after uh, Juno, we get, I mean, her career sort of, Diablo Cody's career, sort of goes through this sort of like, she gets, she wins the Oscar. She wins the Oscar, you know, as a screenwriting personality, which is not the way that most people win Oscars. I feel like it's Diablo Cody, it's Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. I'm trying to think of other like screenwriters who have been like a brand when they won the I mean, Oscar. It's very few of them. They're who also aren't also the director brand, but I would say like the Coens. Right, but I think and I think that's maybe another that's a different bucket altogether. The Coens, yeah. Tarantino, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um but I think just in terms of like just the screenwriters for that movie, and I think, you know, so Diablo Cody's career goes through that sort of predictable backlash, but then it comes out the other side with, well, first of all, Jennifer's Body is an incredibly underrated movie, and everybody needs to know that, and it was not done fairly, and Karen Kusama was not done fairly, and people need to look at that movie without a lot of the preconceptions that they were looking at in that movie between, like, the Diablo Cody thing and the Megan Fox thing. There were a lot of people with knives out for that movie, and I'm yep. here to tell you, Jennifer's Body is clever, it is smart. It is scary, and it has one of the best endings of a movie I've seen in quite a while. Jennifer's body kicks ass. It kicks ass. It's so good. It's so good. And then Young Adult, which uh, more people appreciated for what it was at the time. Not enough people, but a lot of people did. I will throw down and say not enough people still appreciate that movie to the level that they should be appreciating it to. Um, And I was like, from day one, like, this is fucking masterpiece um and i would owe like i owe a lot of that to jason reitman like her collaboration with jason reitman there's a lot of like thought out there that like only his movies with her are good and i don't know if i fully agree with that but like it's pretty close if you want to talk about like it's pretty comparison young adult with ricky and the flash like what Jason Reitman does as a collaborator with her is so clearly understands her voice and is able to like know how to produce an incredible movie out of it without like diminishing her voice in any way and letting her shine and like his own choices shine yeah. in a way that I don't think Ricky and the Flash does. Um, but a lot of people also have an, have opinions about that movie because they just think it's too abrasive or they think it's mean spirited or. I think it's so perfectly calibrated. Did we also know she did an uncredited script revision on Burlesque? Um, She was like one of the, like essentially the modern day Carrie Fisher of doing polishes on actually quite a bit of stuff. But yes. Burlesque is special. I did know about Burlesque. Burlesque is fantastic. And then Tully this year, which again uh, is now I think regressing into not enough people appreciated it. Not enough people talked about it. I think that is a movie that people are going to keep discovering as. I really hope so. It's available on HBO right now. It's so good, but Ricky and the flash. So yes, I don't feel like we can say that Ricky and the flash was misinterpreted or treated poorly. I don't think, I don't think that people were out for it the way that they were out for Jennifer's body or even, you know, some people were resistant to young adult. I think people were were ready to experience it. I just feel like it it left people flat in a way that kind of put it out of the Oscar race basically before the summer was over. Right. It opens Mm -hmm. in early August. By the end of August, everybody knows that, like, this is this is not going to be a Meryl Streep Oscar contender, the way that, you know, 
Julian Julia was, or that like Florence Foster Jenkins would be the next year. Oi. I know. <laughs> well, um, you're also talking about, because we were, at least once the movie was seen, it felt like it was Meryl was like the only thing for it, maybe. Um, just because of how the movie was received and how like Meryl like always kind of comes ahead um, and the things <laughs> she's been nominated for in the past. And it's just like you're also talking about an incredibly heavy Best Actress year. Oh, for sure. Like that is... So the 2015 Oscars are the sort of the famously, that's the Oscars so white Oscars. That's the I, the thing that always allows me to remember who were the the five best actress nominees that year was that was the one where they put the image of the five actresses in a row and they were like it looks like the progression from one woman throughout her whole life where it was like Sir Sharonin as the sort of young ingenue and then Jennifer Lawrence as a little bit older and Kate Blanchett as a little bit older than that wait sorry Brie Larson then Kate Blanchett then Charlotte, Charlotte Rampling. Rampling. So it was just sort of like a woman grows up. Yeah. But yeah, that was a strong that was a strong year. This is it's... also a year of a lot of people being mad that like leading performances were pushed to supporting, which I think goes to the like yeah. the only time that that tactic really like happens as heavily as it does in that year and like some would say this year as well is like that's how heated that race is. Yeah. Well, to their credit, I know we are in a very anti-Golden Globes year, uh, current the current year that we're speaking in, but the Golden Globes got it right that year. They nominated uh, Alicia Vikander and Rooney Mara, both as lead actress that year, both lead actress in a drama. They also managed to nominate Alicia Vikander in supporting for Ex Machina, which was, I think, the correct oh, yeah. placement for her all along. If you wanted to give her an Academy Award that bad and, like, I can see why she's, you know, young and beautiful and a good actress and Oscars love all of those things, but give it to her for Ex Machina. She's fantastic in that movie. Um, they gave it to visual effects for Ex Machina. Surprisingly, I think, God, I what think a great win. It's a great win. It's so, it's always so funny when you can look at a below the line win like that, because those usually are so very much tied to best picture nominees. And when they step out of that, it's always very special and it's always very good. A little surprising that Meryl couldn't have pulled down a Golden Globe nominee for musical or comedy, considering Ricky is both a musical and a comedy. That was a strong year in that category too, where Melissa McCarthy nominated for Spy, fully deserved. Lily Tomlin nominated for Grandma, fantastic, love it. Jennifer Lawrence wins for Joy, which is a divisive movie that I more and more find myself sticking up for. I think she's great in that movie, and I think there are a couple scenes in that movie that are some of the best stuff that she's done. Not all of it is great. I think it is an incredibly messy movie. But more than not, I'm glad we had it. Did I just make you plots and drop something? Uh, No, I just made myself plots. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) If nothing else, that movie gave us... Isabella Rossellini saying adversary in commerce. (laughs) That's why joy should exist. You are in a room, and there is a gun on the table. And the only other person in the room is an adversary in commerce. Only one of you can prevail. Yet, you have protected your business and Maurice's money. Do you pick up the gun, Joy? 
Um, Amy Schumer is nominated. Joy, I feel Sorry. like here and there about. That's so, I think that's like, appropriate. I think it is a movie that should make you feel here defender. and there. I can't go there for Joy quite. All right, that's fine. Amy Schumer is nominated that year for Trainwreck, which that is what the Golden Globe should be there for to give an Amy Schumer and Trainwreck a nomination. I know we've always felt like certain things about Amy Schumer, but I do really think that's a great nomination. The one I would take away and give to Meryl Streep and Ricky and the Flash is Maggie Smith for The Lady in the Van, which is not a good movie, and she is not doing anything in that movie that she doesn't do in a billion other things. And I like Maggie Smith, but like... Well, we were on like this Maggie Smith train for a while of just like, let's nominate her for the same performance, but like it doesn't go to Oscar. Like Right. One of these years we're going to forget to take to get off of that train though and it's going to we're going to wind up at the Oscars with Maggie Smith in you know Crone the movie or whatever and we're going to be like how did we end up here? I know. And I know it's a small role but like I Audra McDonald would have been really close to my ballot because like it's not flashy in any way but it's like everything that the movie needs from her to do like it makes it so tense and like like facilitates huge change in Ricky that we can believe and like kind of root for. So let's go, wait, let's go into that though. Because right before that's right before she shows up in the movie, we know that she's off screen. She's, she's out of town uh, visiting her father who has Alzheimer's. Um, And so in that time that she's away, um, Ricky and Julie and what is it? Pete, Kevin Klein's character, Pete. Sure sounds about right you know sort of like bond and and you know rebond again and you start to think like it's maybe going to be one of those movies where like meryl like reclaims her family by the end and then the very next morning after they all sort of smoke pot and bond and reminisce audra's there she has returned home she is in her kitchen she is making french toast with the extra crispy bacon by the way we need to talk about this kitchen it is a very (laughs) it is a first of all fantastically big open space sort of kitchen it is very much there. It exists to be the antithesis of everything that Ricky wants in her life. It is mm-hmm. too it is too perfect. It is too suburban. It is too whatever. All the types of kitsch are not the types of kitsch that she appreciates. There's the one wall that has all the like bless this mess kind of, you know, sayings yeah. on it. Words which... as decorations. Which like the production designer of this movie needs a major shout out because like if you want to talk about like getting like Midwest moderate affluence correct, this movie is totally it like all of these like weirdly shaped oblong rooms in this house and it's supposed to be like that so computer luxurious. desk that wraps from one wall to the other in the guest yes. room that she's staying in is perfect absolutely perfect. the like basement like rec room that they put about maybe 60 percent as much effort in as they did the rest of the house yeah with like burp also that refrigerator is full like a real refrigerator is full I appreciated that. Did you notice that? When she yes. like opened the freezer to, and, and found the pot? Yeah. That is a packed freezer, and I like it. But I wonder if, like, does that decor fit the Maureen character as played by Audrey McDonald that we see? I don't know if it fully does. I think she's a little bit... She's maybe a little she'd less be a little more humble than that. than that. Like, what? she'd be less fussy. Yeah, or, like, a little less, like... I don't know. She's she feels sharper than the sort of like folksy little sayings that we're seeing on than those like, little. Yeah, like tacky, average, basic. 
Right. I don't know. Maybe that's just me bringing my Audra baggage into this. But so I we totally s- get that read of it. I just also don't know if we know Maureen that much, and like we that's don't. Kind of. Hence my my want yeah. for a television series. Maybe I just want a TV <laughs> series about Ricky and Maureen. But so she shows up the next morning, and she's making breakfast, and Julie absolutely loves this woman and her her affection her physical affection for maureen is so unforced and so natural and you can see that it wounds ricky and it's a really wonderful scene in that way and everything that sort of the previous scene had been building up to was just sort of like you know pot smoking you know one reminiscence of things past kind of a night and then there's this tension between them as like breakfast invitations are sort of being lobbed across the room and Audra's like you look really great in my robe you should keep it and Ricky keeps making these digs under her breath and like nothing is really landing it's sort of tefloning off of Maureen but you can tell that she's not stupid she gets it she knows that Ricky's trying to poke at her and she's just not letting it like land in a way that feels intentional. And then the next scene when she shows up, first of all, it's not that she just like shows up in the guest room and has this like, she brought a chair in there. She brought a chair and she got there and she set herself up while Meryl was like in the other room. So she would know she had like an upper hand on her where like Meryl's like in her towel and halfway naked. And she's like, you know, Oh, I, you know, I'm in a towel. And Audrey just goes, I've got five sisters. I've seen somebody naked before. And she knows that she's she's you know got Ricky on the defensive, and that's where she wants her. And it's very tactical, and it's very much like argument as warfare, and I love it. Mm-hmm. But then the scene is is a it's a fantastically written scene because it doesn't give you easy rooting interests in either direction. Where when Ricky yeah. says, because basically it's Maureen saying, "Get out of town." Julie is at a very a very fragile place. You convinced her to skip her therapy yesterday and that's not how we want things handled. And it would be better for everybody if you go back to Tarzana and all of that is true and correct. And it's Audra McDonald saying it. So we're very much inclined to side with her. But then what Ricky is saying is also not entirely wrong, which is she got Julie out of the house. She got Julie to wash her hair. She's, you know, Julie is better off since, Ricky has come home. And the other thing where she says, where, you know, Audra, they start to really get real. And sh- and she's like, you know, you never came back home. I, I was the only mother that they had. Mm-hmm. They needed me, blah, blah, blah. And Ricky's it like... It becomes an argument about whatever their grudges are because it's a lot of the history for Maureen and it's a lot of the politics for Ricky. But it's also when Ricky says you would you would say things like it's not a good time such and such is doing sat prep such and such is doing a thing that all seems very real and true also that like mm-hmm. yeah maureen's not the saint maureen wanted to keep her family running on the schedule that they were running on and she didn't need ricky coming into town and like fucking everything up on a visit so she yeah she probably did discourage her from coming home to visit a few times and nobody's a saint in the situation and nobody's a full sinner and I don't know. I liked that sort of thorniness to it. Yeah. Which, I mean, maybe we should, because, again, we're praising Diablo Cody again. We could talk about best original screenplay a little bit. Because I will say, this is not a bad original screenplay lineup. But, like, 
it's not necessarily the things I love about some of these movies. You have obviously the winner, Spotlight, great winner, um, Bridge of Spies, Ex Machina, Inside Out, Straight Out of Compton. I maybe if the movie like played into what Diablo Cody was doing well, like it would have made more sense. But like I would be as happy or happier to see this over like Inside Out or Straight Out of Compton. Like both of those movies, I are movies that I really like, but not necessarily that's where I would place another. Honestly, I might Spotlight might be the only movie in that category that I would have nominated in this yeah. category. I think Ex Machina has a good spot there too. Bridges yeah. Spies I also feel like Bridges Spies like has its of... moments, but I don't feel like that's a screenplay movie to me. Now I'm Final trying to look 15 up minutes of that movie. What were my screenplay nominees that year? So I had Spotlight. I did have Inside Out. Okay. I liked Inside Out. Um, and then my other three were, oh God, I, I swear to God, I'm not a contrarian asshole, but my other three that year were Mistress America, Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, which fully, for as much as, you know, Francis Ha never made it to the Oscar stage, Mistress America never made it to any stage and was fully forgotten. And that's a goddamn shame. Eden, the Mia Hansen love movie about uh techno music which you wouldn't think would be a screenplay thing but i feel like it assembles a timeline very smartly and then tom at the farm the xavier dolan movie which i really really liked good movie okay so i pulled up mine there's one that i maybe wouldn't stand by today Uh um, but i really love this movie um my nominees are ex machina i'll see you in my dreams that was close for me i loved that movie mustang oh nice um, the one I wouldn't stand by, maybe Sicario, and maybe I would actually put Ricky in the Flash there. Now that I've like argued myself into it, yeah. um, and then my winner spotlight. Some other original screenplays that year. Uh, it follows. I thought was very good. Tangerine was very good. Oh no, Tangerine would be in there. I don't think I was able to see Tangerine until after, like well after, yeah, the Oscars. Grandma was a good original screenplay that year. Sleeping with Other People, Leslie Headland's script for that movie I really liked. But yeah, I think you're right. I think there was room for a Ricky and the Flash. But again, it, it just it was not a success in a way that would have made people remember it as an awards mm-hmm. movie that year for you know for good or ill. And which this is too brings bad. me to something I would like to bring up because it's also true of Jonathan Demi. Diablo Cody has only ever been nominated for Juno, which she won for, and has not been nominated since, and that feels criminal. And then yeah. there's also Jonathan Demi, who was only ever nominated when he won for Silence of the Lambs and nothing else. Which like, Jonathan Demi didn't ever have a documentary nomination. Documentary nomination surprises me less because I think for a while there, the Oscars were just very resistant to music documentaries. Right. But as I mean, a, thing a lot of them got a lot of attention. Films. That is true. Um, it surprises me more that he didn't get like a screenplay nomination for Philadelphia. Something like that, yeah. And honestly, I mean, Rachel Getting Married is the best movie of 2008, so it's criminal that, you know, that didn't get more, more recognition for things beyond just Anne Hathaway's performance. Can we talk about the wedding and the way this movie ends in a way that, like, comes from my, my heart and soul and is manipulative, but in the best ways and the ways that I want to be manipulated. It ties up a lot of those threads, though. Like, there's this momentum to it that, like, Ricky does right by people and, like, does right by herself and at least just, like, putting herself in there. Like, 
The moment I love, which is probably the most manipulative, is when her daughter, Julie, is in this wedding party walking down the aisle and she gets to like the threshold and she just like is about ready to have a panic attack and lose it and can't do it. And like, what does she say to her? She says like, she says, don't, uh, she's, what does she say? She's like, like, don't don't run run away. Don't run. Yeah. She fully is able to pull it together from that moment, and it's beautiful. Yeah. And it's also, like, not showy. It's showy to us in the audience because it's like, well, of course this happens when she's a foot away from Ricky. But it's not like Ricky making a grand show. Like, it's just her right. and her daughter in that moment. Right. Uh, I love she that. give her what she needs. And then so we get to the reception, and there we find out that her toast that she's going to give is ultimately going to end up being a song and okay they make such a big deal of the fact that ricky can't afford to fly back to indianapolis for the wedding to the point where rick springfield has to like pawn his guitar to get them the money to go and yet by the time we get to the wedding the band get there all of the band is there including groupie daniel the bartender ben platt (laughs) like which is my favorite favorite thing about oh so this is funny I saw this movie on a date. The first time I saw this movie, I saw this movie on a date, which doesn't seem to be remarkable, but like, I don't ever, I've never, I don't ever see movies on dates. It is a very, very, very small handful. I'm going to say, who is this, who is this person? You were planning your summer around this movie. First of all, I just haven't gone on very many like actual date dates in my life for several reasons. You know, but most, but also, I just don't go. I, I just don't go on movie dates, and so this was like a rare one. So this is why I remember it, and I remember this being like a big topic of conversation after. Of like, I can't believe they flew out Ben Platt, the the groupie bartender, for this wedding. Well, you performance. need a hype man, but it's 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 ludicrous in a way that I find so charming and heartwarming. Where it's like she brought her family to see her family. Like that's yeah. It it kills me it just it and it does and then she sings the springsteen song off on the side and she like can't help but like sing along because she like the song is i my love will not let you down which is so thematically like on the nose but it's it's it and the fiance sebastian stan's fiance is so perfectly uh picture perfect uptight fiance wife where she's just like has never heard a springsteen song do something about it do something about this she's going to what she's going to sing and like her parents (laughs) are this like awful uptight they voted for fucking trump i'll tell you what where they're like it's so loud like some of the guests like putting their hands over their ears like ah it's loud it's like it's a guitar indianapolis jesus christ like you've been to a 
I don't know, something, a rodeo. It's the convergence of people who love Springsteen that voted for Trump and people who hate Springsteen that voted for Trump. Yeah, honestly. But then it ultimately, everybody, you know, the right people thaw and Sebastian Stan and the wife get out there and they sort of modify their choreographed... I do. It, it's a very smart movie about weddings and that, like, it knew that they would have a choreographed dance that they were supposed to do to their actual first song. And, you know him making this step to sort of like, no, we're going to go with it and we're going to dance to the song that my mom is playing. And the whole wedding party gets out there and has their sort of like little choreographed beats. And then everybody gets out there and they're all dancing. And she's this gift. The one thing she could bring to them is the thing that's making everybody happy. And I just find it so lovely and irresistible. And I walk out of that movie with a huge fucking smile on my face. And I have fully, if not forgotten, then at least have forgiven all of the things about the movie that I didn't love. And it's wonderful. The I don't back know. half of the movie is much better. Um, I will say watching it a second time, I loved it way more than I did the first time I saw it. Yeah. Because it was just kind of a bummer because I was expecting more from a Jonathan Demi Diablo Cody collaboration. Um, of course. Like all of the ways that I could see the script not really being served kind of bothered me. And it's a lot, it goes down a lot more easy the second time. And I would fully watch this movie a million times now. So she also plays, is the second song she plays, does she play Cold One during this set? Or is that a different That's during point? the credits. That's during the credits. So this is the original song from this movie that was sort of being pushed as... I imagine a best song. original song contender that year. And so best original song this year, shit goes weird this year, especially. This is like, okay, I like original song is like one of my like, like children. Yeah. Basically. I yeah. love it unconditionally. This is one of the worst original song lineups in my lifetime. Take us through it, my friend. Okay. So you have the winner, probably the worst winner of both of our lifetimes the writings on the wall from specter which it, like of course was like a huge joke that year sam smith did not like sam smith was famously the well. first first openly gay person to win an Oscar. first openly gay man and then backstage when he was in the press room and they were asking him about that someone asked him well no actually you have um was it howard ashman yeah and they were like, actually, he was an openly gay man. And Sam Smith says, oh, really? That's great. We should go on a date. And yeah. Like, um, he died of AIDS. Yeah. So <laughs> up until so, this point, well and I still done, feel like, I still feel like, uh, I don't want to maybe get into it, but like, I think gay guys on Twitter are too mean to Sam, Sam Smith. Smith. There's a culture of hating Sam Smith that to me feels a little gross and a little eating of eating our young in a way that like, he really is just a young dummy. And right, we right, maybe right. should, like, look to the young dummy within that we were at fucking 22 or whatever. When did we put our foot in our mouth? And have way. a little bit of compassion and a little bit of, like, not be quite so gleeful to just tear down. You know what I mean? I Don't think it's Don't be gross. the guest at Ricky's son's wedding. Find the Ricky within yourself. <laughs> Yet... Everything to do with Writings on the Wall, which I think is a horrible song, and everything to do with his Oscar acceptance speech and the Howard Ashman thing 
is so I can't defend it. I can't. I'm sorry. Like, it's, well, it's so uh, bad. Writings on the wall it's is so like bad. a lullaby from hell. It yeah. Is like, why is this like newborn baby wailing at me? <laughs> it's bad. It's like fully bad, and it fully won an Oscar because Skyfall was that great of an original song. I was going to say Skyfall ended up winning two best original song Oscars. This one and for Writings exactly. on the Wall. Exactly. Also, though, um, Skyfall's and- a good movie, and Spectre is garbage. Like okay, going down the list, you have Manta Ray from Racing Extinction, which is the annual J. Uh, Ralph nomination, <laughs> the annual documentary nomination as well. Yes, and Simple Song Number Three from Youth, a movie that I hate. Both, yeah, exactly. Um, both of them were cut from the telecast, which like I get it, like whatever. But like, do a montage of songs or something, or do a montage of like three of the songs if people aren't gonna know. But like, I tell you, I didn't miss them. I didn't miss it. I mean, whatever. I just, you're nominated and then, like, you're not even, whatever. Um, and then, Till It Happens to You, the Lady Gaga Diane Warren collaboration for another documentary, The Hunting Ground, which had to have been very close. And, like, we could have had our Diane Warren Oscar. The producers oh. sure thought that this was going to win because they put this yes, performance right before the award was giving out and they gave it such a spotlight. And it was Lady Gaga getting the spotlight, but I. You know, I and a handful of other sort of dedicated Oscar watchers were the ones on tenterhooks being like, is Diane Warren going to finally win her Oscar? And I was so excited. And I was like, it's going to happen, you guys. It's going to happen. And then it was writings on the wall. And I have never been quite so pissed for this category. I mean, there's a lot of people that are like, Till It Happens to You is a terrible song. It kind of is, but who cares? I mean, and maybe lyrically, but like, was there a much better it's not song? Not as bad as writing on the wall. However, I guess however, earned it was fine. I was gonna bring that up. The one I would give it to, honestly, was earned it from Fifty Shades of Grey by The Weeknd. Like, it was good. It's used well in the movie. Yeah, and in a bad movie, sure, but like, and it's a decent song. Which um, which which Shades of Grey movie was? Uh, uh, was the Taylor Swift Zane? That was song? the second one. I would have honestly nominated that. I thought that was a really oh. good song. Um, I, I did I actually? I don't think I put it on my ballot, but like I would have been fully happy if Capital Letters by Haley Steinfeld from the third Fifty Shades uh, Grey movie would be on this list this year. But wait, the third Fifty Shades movie or the third Pitch Perfect movie? No, the third Fifty Shades. Oh, she's queen of threequels, I guess. Hell yes. Um, Bumblebee, queen of fifth quills, sixth quills, whatever. I refuse. I'm sorry. Um, I refuse. I refuse to. Sorry. And I love Haley Steinfeld. No, I'm not doing it. I don't. Um, so uh, I think that's a rumor. I know. I, I choose to believe it. <laughs> um, the, okay. So, but best original song, like it also, Cold One is like so perfectly attuned to what they want it to do it's also co-written by jenny lewis who's uh like a rock musician who's popular this was also the year of i believe maybe it was the year after that jenny lewis did the um one of the guys music video with brie larson and anne hathaway and kristen stewart that was so great yeah so it was like she was around but like the fact that they couldn't get any headway for that for cold one when it's like this is exactly what the music branch says they want out of their best original yeah. song nominees, and they sure as shit didn't really do that with the nominees they ended up with. It's like I think it just kind of goes to show that Sony did 
absolutely nothing for this movie come Oscar time, and that's probably what it it would have people would have been needed to remind it that the movie even exists. The other songs that were Golden Globe nominated but not Oscar nominated because Writings on the Wall also won the Golden Globe for best song, and it's funny that like that happened, and we still never thought in a million years that it would win the Oscar. It was we were so sure that it wasn't going to be yeah because we were like Globes are going to Globes right uh, so Globes Tale for this year Jesus. Uh, yeah, Globes are going to Globe this year, and and Oscar could end up doing the same, so don't worry about it. Um, Writings on the Wall and Simple Song Number 3 somehow were the two Golden Globe nominees and Oscar nominees. But it was uh, One Kind of Love from Love and Mercy, the Brian Wilson oh, movie. Oh, I love that movie. See You Again from Furious 7, which is the kind of hit from a movie that would have been nominated in, like, the 80s. And it's, we just don't do that anymore or i guess like radio hits from movies are so rare that we don't find them like we don't recognize that trend anymore i don't know what it is but it's surprising Mm -hmm. that we don't do that anymore and then probably the one i would have given the golden globe to this year also from 50 shades of gray but this is the nominated love me like you do which was ellie goulding ellie goulding it was a max martin song yes And we could have given Max Martin an Oscar, you guys. (laughs) Come on. People were so pissed about Fifty Shades of Grey being nominated for an Oscar. It's always that thing where it's like, why is this movie nominated for an Oscar? And it's like, pay attention to what the category is, guys. It's like when the Norbit nomination happened, which is like... Also, there were worse movies nominated that year than Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, hold on. Let me see if I can pull up my master ranking. Joe does a master ranking every year of all the Oscar nominees. Definitely be sure to read that this year. Be on the lookout for Slate. Slate's going to publish my Oscar ranking this year. I will post it to our Twitter account. I mean, there are a lot of bad Oscar nominees that year, aside from Fifty Shades of Grey. Like, there, everybody hates like The Revenant. I don't necessarily think it's like all that bad. I just don't think it's all that great. But like. Trumbo is fully one of the worst Oscar nominees. Trumbo is my my bot was my worst movie that year. So I've got so I Trumbo brought it up. Trumbo is garbage. Fifty seven movies were nominated for at least one Oscar in twenty fifteen. Trumbo was number fifty seven. Number fifty six was the one hundred year old man who climbed out the window and disappeared, which was nominated for Hello, best makeup and makeup hair, hairstyling. Yes, fifty five. Um, huh. I put Racing Extinction. Oh, you know why? Because it's, Racing Extinction isn't Chasing Ice. That's why. Um, <laughs> Chasing Ice is a much better movie than Racing Extinction. Also an original song nominee. It was an original song nominee, and it probably should have been a do- Best Documentary nominee. I thought it was very good. Anyway, yeah. yes, that was the J. Ralph double. This was the second one of uh, the J. Ralph Best Original Song nominees for environmental disaster movies. That was number 55. And then number 54, I said Fifty Shades of Grey, which is, I probably should have ranked it ahead of Spectre, which I put at 53, because Spectre's bad. I certainly enjoyed the experience of watching Fifty Shades of Grey more than I enjoyed the experience of watching Spectre. Yeah. Spectre's a wank. Yeah, it is. What else before we get into the IMDb game? What else about Ricky and the Flash? Can we talk, even have a small conversation? Because I do want to talk about Meryl and Oscar, at least in some way, considering this is our third movie and we haven't really ever discussed her Oscar trajectory. I'd at least like to talk, have a conversation about like Meryl in August and like when it works and when it doesn't. My favorite Broadway Tony winning play, Meryl in August. (laughs) 
<laughs> what if Audra McDonald starred in a in a play called Meryl in August? What um, then? Tony uh, Award. Book it in Tony the Award is what would on Broadway. Yeah. yeah, seventh Tony Award. Book it in the American Airlines Theater and just like play it out. <laughs> yeah, like right at the end of the season, she'll still win. Um, okay, so it kind of all started with Julie and Julia, which you know opened. Was as, Devil like, Wears Prada not an August movie? It was June. Oh wow. Okay. But like the Meryl in the summer was like a thing that started the year of Devil Wears Prada and Prairie Home Companion hitting. Like, oh, Prairie Home Companion, so good. A, a, a it, movie that really also helps to prove that Meryl Streep can sing. I know the Into the Woods movie put a really big dent into this idea that Meryl could sing, and obviously, Mamma Mia is its own thing, but. You look at a movie like Ricky and the Flash or Prairie Home Companion or fucking Postcards from the Edge, Meryl can sing. Prairie Home Companion is probably the best singing she's done on screen. Yeah. It's beautiful. I think she's Um, very appropriate to Ricky and the Flash because she sounds like what an aging bar band singer would sound like. Yes. Yes. But I think the August thing is interesting because it's like all of these movies, none of which, like, if it wasn't for Meryl, like, Ricky and the Flask would probably be the exception for, like, having some, like, real Oscar conversation. Yeah. Like, the Florence Foster Jenkins one is, like, fully that road, the, like, on the back of Meryl to Oscar nominations. I, I'm saying that as someone who's despised that movie. Um, but it kind of started the August thing with Julia and Julia, which was a hit and, like... Meryl got really great reviews for that and it carried her through. And if it wasn't for the blind side and the Sandra Bullock narrative, she's probably our number two, right? Yeah. Also, it probably Um, shouldn't be discounted that like, I mean, Mamma Mia wasn't August, but like it was mid to late July. So like there was some precedent there too. We're like, yes, it's, it's makes money in the summer. Yeah. But like, it's kind of had diminishing returns after Julia and Julia. It was Hope Springs, which fully had it followed Iron Lady, and people were like, "Yeah, she could still be nominated for Hope Springs when that movie came out." And that's like a forgotten Meryl movie. I love it largely. I still haven't seen it. Give it a Um, shot. I think you'd like it. I probably would. Um, Then you have Ricky and the Flash and Florence Foster Jenkins. Ricky and the Flash is the lowest grossing of all of them and that's kind of a shame particularly when Florence Foster Jenkins made a little bit more money yeah what do you make of like we kind of forget that already we've forgotten this that it's like in the age of like we're constantly told that or at least Hollywood sends the message well we can't movie make movies with older women headlining because they don't make money and Meryl has largely proven that to be false especially in summer movie season do we not count the giver as a Merrill movie we do not okay because that's also august why would we ever i don't know um i think it's i think it's an important thing to talk about because it allows you to talk about meryl streep in through the guise of her being just an incredibly bankable and popular actress and every time we talk about meryl i think i want to talk about why Meryl's success means we should have faith in many more actresses of... Absolutely. Because that's what I would say. It was like, give other people the opportunities that she's afforded as well. Especially when, like, Julie and Julia can be a $100 million movie. Well, it's... I mean, female-fronted movies like that that make a ton of money 
don't ever get brought up again. Like, it's, you know, it's the yeah. same thing with just, like, nobody remembers how much fucking money the First Wives Club did. And the fact that that, I mean, not that I would have, I don't like sequels just for the sake of sequels, but it's really surprising that we never got, you know, First Wives Club 2 after how much money that, uh, that movie made that year. And I don't know. I have this conversation about that and about the birdcage and about all sorts of stuff. But... Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's a little bit of having to prove herself every single time, which is strange because she's, you know, Meryl doesn't really have to prove herself, but I think, like, the bankability thing always seems to come as a surprise to people. Yeah. And it shouldn't. It's foolish. It's foolish. So, if you could replace any of her Oscar nominations, because I do think she has some not great Oscar nominations, with one for Ricky and the Flash, what would it be? I mean, Florence Foster Jenkins seems like a really easy one. The twenty Of the 21 nominations, I'll say this. My five least favorite Meryl Streep nominations will make this into a little bit of a game. Of the ones I've seen, and I should say that I have never seen Ironweed or all of the Deer Hunter. So that's my little caveat of Meryl nominations. Everything else I've seen. The five that I would probably take away are Florence Foster Jenkins... Into the Woods, um, The French Lieutenant's Woman. I don't like that movie, and like she's fine in it. That movie. I don't think it's very good. That's the only one of like her '80s run that I would probably take away. I guess four of the five I would take away are back to back. I would take away Florence Foster Jenkins, Into the Woods, August Osage County, and Iron Lady. I would take away the Iron Lady. I think I'm going to keep August Osage County with the asterisk that, like, you know, not considering the competition. Just looking at her list of, like, worthy or not worthy. Like, I'm sure there were five actresses in 2013 that were better than her in August Osage County, but I think she's actually really good in August Osage County. So I guess it becomes, I don't know, I kind of stick up for her in Music of the Heart, but, like, I get where, like, especially coming in 1999 and what a great year that was, it shouldn't have been an Oscar nominee. She can have a good movie where she's good in it without it being an Oscar nominee, and so we'll take away Music of the Heart. Let's turn this around because, like, we can't just diss Meryl here because obviously we adore her. Give her one that she did not get nominated for that is not Ricky and the Flash and is not obviously The Hours. Oh, yeah. The Hours has its own sort of caveat because she was nominated for Adaptation that year and she had, you know, competition from her own movie that year. Hmm. I mean, we think we can also agree that the ones that we would take away, she is better in Ricky and the Flash. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So... We mentioned Prairie Home Companion, and I definitely think I would have nominated her for that. I would have, too. That would be my answer, because fuck it. Make her a double nominee that year. You know what? No, here's what I'm going to say. Because I think we talked I think we talked about, in the one of the last couple weeks, about what a strange Best Actress year 1994 was. And, yeah. you know, was sort of weirdly wide open. She is better in The River Wild than any of the nominees for Best Actress that year. I'm going to say. I got to watch that movie. She's fucking amazing. Have you never seen it? I saw it when I was a kid, so no. She's, it's the perfect, like, action adventure performance, but she's like, it's, she's Meryl Streep. Like, she's, it's not like she's like, you know. She does all genres, people. She does, and she's great. Let's get her in another fucking action movie where she's not, like, a bureaucrat, but she gets to, like, I don't know, kill people. (laughs) 
more roles like Mary Poppins Returns, honestly. More No more roles like more Mary topsy. Poppins Returns. That's precisely more topsy. my Meryl She's issue these days. Great. Again, another fun Meryl singing performance. It's her worst performance, listeners. It's so much fun, listeners. It's so good. Joe is fully trolling me. He knows how I feel. I, I, I know how you feel, but I also genuinely, that was my favorite part of that movie. That was my favorite scene in that movie. Sorry. Sorry about it. I'm. I'm getting the silent treatment. That doesn't work on podcast. Formulate words. I'm. He, yeah. Take any still photo of me. That's precisely what I was just doing. I just did the full silent monologue that Nicole Kidman does from birth just now. Well. It's just my face. Barely moving. Okay. Anything? I love Mary Poppins Returns. I should say that. I should be more positive. Anything else before we go into the IMDb game? I don't know. Have a cold one on me. I just think it's a pretty... It is a flawed movie that ends in a way that leaves me thinking, I really liked that movie. And that's a type of movie. You know what I mean? That is a yeah. specific type of movie that does that. Yeah, I'm definitely going to... I wouldn't have had as much um, urge to revisit it if not for this podcast, and now I definitely know that I will be checking back in with this movie again. I like it a lot. Ben Platt, best character in that movie. It's the it's my favorite Ben Platt performance, too. That's the other thing. The experience of watching Woo! this movie as somebody who wasn't the biggest Dear Evan Hansen fan is very interesting and strange. Yeah, because like Ben Platt essentially just plays all of us. Like he is just a Meryl Streep. He just fan. like just yells at her randomly. He's like, Queen, or he's just like, You're gorgeous. You. I love you. And it's like, yeah, that's what I would be doing. He had no lines in the script. He was just there <laughs> responding to Meryl. He and Kiala Settle just sort of like showed up on set one day and they were like, yeah, stick around. And then he just started like yelling stuff. Yeah. The producers on this movie, because his dad, Mark Platt, is a producer. And also um, Lorraine, Lorena Scafaria, however we pronounce her name, from uh, who did The Meddler. Oh, God, I love her. Is a producer on this movie. So there we go. Yay. Yay. Ricky and the Flash. Ricky and the Flash. Good movie. We like it, even though it has problems. Yes. All right, so the IMDb game. Joe, would you like to explain the IMDb game to our listeners? Sure. The IMDb game is a fun little contest where we challenge each other to name the four movies that are listed under a given actor's IMDb page where it says known for. What are the four movies they're best known for? And we guess at them. And if we get two answers wrong, then we get given the years for the missing movies to better help us. And then if we still can't get them, then we will get even more hints because it's much more fun to get things right than it is to get things wrong. And we usually avoid actors whose IMDb's are cluttered with Marvel and Harry Potter movies because then it's just no fun to be like, which four of the seven Harry Potter movies is, you know, Helena Bonham Carter known for or whatever. So we also, uh, if there is a voice performance or an, uh, uh, TV performance among their known for, we will call that out in advance because it's just more sporting that way. Yeah. Christopher, have you picked something? I have. I would like to preface this by saying I was going to be fully evil and I was going to do, because this is a Sophie's Choice reunion between Kevin Klein yeah. and Meryl Streep, I was going to do Peter McNichol. I was just about Peter to say. McNichol 
only has two people on his IMDb page, or two movies. He has Sophie's Choice and Ally McBeal. Justice, so Justice for Ghostbusters for too, Jesus. Right? And lots of other TV other Veep. Other things. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he's good in Veep. Um. So, yeah, you are not getting Peter McNichol. All right. I almost did the Bill Ir- Do you think you could take on Bill Irwin? I almost did that. No, it don't do that one. a little evil. That'll um, just be Bill me, Irwin, like, grumbling. I won't get that. I know. You would be so mad. I would. Um, I think that these are the Bill Irwins I would have guessed, though, to be honest. Um, no, I am going... I will be I will be much more gentle on you than Bill Irwin or Peter McNichol. I am going the Jonathan Demme route. Jonathan Demme, who... Um, famously won his oscar for the silence of the lambs someone else won his their not his her second oscar for the silence of the lambs i'm giving you jodie foster okay jodie foster the very single jodie foster <laughs> the canonically famously single, single unattached you know she came out as a single woman it was very i also brave. loved in that speech how she quoted molly shannon from snl doing the i'm 50 <laughs> That was what it I was, was living for. We don't talk about that speech enough. We did at the time. We maybe talked about it too much like that week, but then we just like stopped talking about it and we shouldn't have. It's quite something. One of the great works of modern oratory in our lifetime. All right. Silence of the Lambs has got to be one of Jodie Foster's. Yes, it is. Okay. Contact has to be one of Jodie Foster's. Contact, correct. Hmm. Okay. Oh, it's... Is Elysium one of them? No, it is not. Thank you, God. Because I always felt like Blomkamp's movies are like overrepresented in these things, but okay, so it's not. Jodie Foster. Taxi Driver? Yep. Okay. One more for Jodie. I don't think it's The Accused. I don't think it's like little man tate or anything like that i think it's probably a newer one is it oh what's that one i'm thinking of shoot inside man no okay so you got two wrong guesses the year is 1988 it is the accused it's the accused okay all right. <laughs> i went easy on you this week though i was surprised that you got to taxi driver so quickly yeah um, though I suppose that's bad judgment on my part. I always go for the Oscar crazy. nominations. Yeah. There's also, like, surprisingly a lot of things that it could have also been. Like, I'm a little surprised it's not Panic Room. Surprise it's not Panic Room. Surprise it's not Nell. Um, Tay and Aween. Yeah. Surprise it's not one of her movies that she directed that she wasn't in. Like, uh, Home for the Holidays or Laura something Plum. like that. Flora Plum. Oh my God. <laughs> Jodie Foster, the once and future director of Flora, Flora Plum. Plum. When that movie gets made, when it gets made, I'm going to be the uh, happiest person in the universe. We'll be there. I will book a plane to see that with you. So you took mercy on me for this IMDb game. I have gone I un- uncharacteristically hard on you for this one. So I also stuck with the Jonathan Demi route. I went with Rachel getting married. For a second there, I thought we had picked the same thing because I was, you had sort of deflected off of Bill Irwin and I was like, oh, he's going for the same one that I did because mine is also from Rachel getting married. The titular role of Rachel. Rosemary DeWitt. Rosemary DeWitt. There's no TV. No TV. One of them you're never going to get and I'm just going to have fun giving you hints for that, but I'm just going to okay, say. Okay, fine. Well, Rachel getting married. Yes, correct. 
La La Land. No. Interestingly, went for Damn. went for the teeny role in La La Land. No. Um. Uh, yeah. For her. Why was she there? Um. I know this movie. I felt like I should have liked it more. She's good in it. Um. It's the Lynn Shelton movie with Emily Blunt. You didn't like this movie? I I liked it. I thought I would like it way more than I did. I loved this movie. Uh, what's it called? Sister something sister. Yep. Your sister's sister. I'll give it to you. Oh, okay. It's... I was thinking it was like your sister's keeper. Nope. Sister's keeper is a different movie. That's the one where Cameron Diaz has the organ baby. Yes. To save the other baby. Yes. Yes. And that made me cry so much, even though it's terrible. Fully. Like, it's like, we are going to throw Lifehouse songs at you. You better yep. cry. Yep. All right. So you okay, got Rachel so... getting married. You got your sister's sister. You only have one strike, and you have two left. I cannot think of anything else that she is in there because my mind is stuck on. Was she on Mad Men? Um, yes, she was on the first season of Mad Men, but that is not, uh, you don't have any TV. Or else right, 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 right. Wow. I. Do you just want ears? No. Okay. No, no. Um, the only thing I can remember her from, because I think she's actually on the poster, there was a Duplass Brothers movie because she's in like their circle. Um, what is it called? Oh, I know what one you're thinking of. It's like her. It's the and... Joe Swanberg movie, right? Oh, it's a Swanberg movie. Okay, which is also it's the same. It's the same then. group. It's not. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that's the one you're thinking of, but that's not the. It's not one of them. Okay, so just, don't go. Let's down count road. it as a guess, and we will just move All right. forward. Let's pretend you guessed digging for fire, and okay, so the years are 2012 and 2015. It's not going to help me at all. No, um, it's not. The 2012 is the one that is like plausibly guessable although it is all right i'm just gonna start giving you hints the 2012 okay, movie is a movie that is our is in our greater bucket for this head oscar buzz like we could end up doing this movie it is okay um i wonder if her name nope her name is not on the poster she's like the fifth or sixth lead she plays the wife of one of the two leads her co-star from one of the movies you have already mentioned is connected to this movie through marriage. So either your sister's sister or Rachel getting married. Okay, so... Is it John Krasinski? Uh-huh. I fully don't know what it could be if it's John Krasinski. Because, like, the only thing I can that's coming to my head with him in a movie is either Leatherheads or it's complicated, so I'm going to say Leatherheads. Not Leatherheads. No, directed by an Oscar-nominated director who was reteaming with the guy who starred in the movie that he was Oscar-nominated for. In 2012. In 2012. Also, a very recently crowned two-time Oscar winner is the female lead in this movie, although I can't remember for Frances the Frances McDormand. Right. Francis McDormand in a movie with John Krasinski. Okay. Uh-huh. And then the lead of it is the is the guy who starred in the director's big uh, Oscar-nominated movie. The screenplay was written by John Krasinski and this unnamed lead actor, who is also a screenplay Whoa. winner. What the hell is this? 
Krasinski co-wrote the screenplay with the lead actor, who was also a Oscar winner for Best Original Screenplay. And he won it. Damon or Affleck? Yes. So it's got to be Gus Van Sant? So it's... Is it the fucking fracking movie? It is the fucking fracking movie. Do you remember what it's called? Promised Land. Promised Land. Yes. I hate you. So that's not even the impossible one. The impossible one is a horror remake that I forgot she was in. Okay. Horror remake. What was the year again? 2015. So the year we're talking about. She co-starred with another very recent Oscar winner. From perhaps the same horror movie. Horror remake. From perhaps the same movie that our two-time Best Actress winner was in. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell was in um, fucking Poltergeist? Poltergeist. The Poltergeist remake. That sucks, man. Yeah. I should have given you Bill Irwin. <laughs> Okay, so Bill Irwin, the one that is not listed as a voice, though it's a voice performance, is Interstellar. Oh, for Tars. He was Tars. Yeah. Yeah. He's funny in that movie. Yeah, he is. That's a good... So, okay, so Rosemary DeWitt, by all rights, should have had what else on her IMDb? United States of Terra, certainly. She's fantastic on that. Weirdly, Mad Men does not show up for people. Yeah, it should. And I always think that it does or will that's probably if you're talking about if you if your function for known for is here's what you know this person from mad men should absolutely be on there yeah 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 rosemary dewitt who is married to do you know who she's married to i do not ron livingston fascinating yes oh wait are they still yes do you know who she used to be married to no famously Jerked it on TV this year in a prestige <gasps> HBO movie Christina. or HBO series, Christmas Cena. She was married to Christmas Cena for eleven years. You know what? The full whiplash of me being like Messina when he was yanking on TV <laughs> in Sharp Objects to him dyeing his hair platinum blonde, which everybody else was all about, and I was like, "This is no." That was the no. whiplash where Christmas Cena went from your wheelhouse to my wheelhouse. That was me like <laughs> taking him by the scruff of his neck and going yoink, and he's he's with me now. Well, you can have him as long as I shall. Uh, Rosemary DeWitt, fully who should have an Oscar nomination for Rachel getting married. She's so fucking good at it. All right, that drives me fucking crazy. That it all, like, not even Jenny Lumet got the screenplay nomination for Rachel getting married when, like, that is one of the signature best movies of 2008. Bottom line. It's so stupid. Do you think if there was a top 10 in 2008 that 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 movie would have been campaigned for differently and things might have turned out differently for Rachel getting married? Or do you feel like it was just it was too 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 spiky and thorny for voters to get on with? I see. I because you know how we talk about Moonlight in that way, where like, like could they have pushed it differently? Right, I like felt Moonlight like that year they weren't pushing it at all. So I kind of am tempted to say no. But do you do you, do you know what we were talking about when Moonlight was was nominated and they were like, if it was a best five year. It might not have been campaigned for at all because top, you know, top five might have seemed too unrealistic. But because it was a top ten, they started just campaigning that movie because, like, oh yeah, it could definitely get like one of the like ninth or tenth slots in this movie. And then all of a sudden, it builds and it builds and it builds. And I'm not saying Rachel getting married could have done that, but like maybe 
because it was one of the most, you know, best reviewed movies of the year and it was a Jonathan Demi movie that if they would have put some extra effort into it, I don't know. I don't know. I do think Sony Classics is unfortunately a distributor that has a hard time like having multiple children and like that year they made Frozen River their baby. But Frozen River only ended up getting the one more nomination than Melissa But see, Leo, I right? think if there were 10 nominees that year, Frozen River would absolutely be a best picture. You think nominee. so? That's interesting. Yes. Huh. Yes. I think you would have that, The Wrestler, um, probably Doubt. Oh, I think Doubt is the number six movie that year. So wait, so it's it's The Reader, Slumdog, Benjamin Button, Milk, Milk Frost, Nixon. Frost Nixon. I think Doubt is six that year. Yes. I think the wrestler would have even had a chance. I mean, yes. Wally would have been a nominee. Wally, Wally Dark Knight. Right? Like, <laughs> it took us forever to say the Dark Knight, and it's the reason why we got the 10. <laughs> but, like, they, w- they were on the top 10, right, that year? So it's yeah, 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 Doubt, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doubt, Wally, Dark Knight, or 6, 7, 8. Wrestler, let's say 9. So we're already up to 9. And then, I think Frozen River might have had it above the wrestler, though. Okay, so we're at, we're you know we've got our eight, and so our nine and ten are maybe the wrestler, Frozen River, Revolutionary Road, Happy Go Lucky is a screenplay nominee that year. In Bruges is a screenplay mm. nominee that year. I don't see Best Picture nominees for either of those. I think you're probably right. So yeah, I mean, I guess I guess it does sort of like drop off pretty dramatically from there. What are the film editing nominees that year? No, all the best pictures, and then and then Dark Knight, maybe Iron Man. Honestly, I don't know. I, was that a Producers Guild nominee? Hold on, let me look that up. We're recording this the day after Producers Guild. Oh, the... Shit the bed. Oh, the sturm and drang about Green Book. Will we ever survive the year that Green Book won a bunch of awards? Good Green Lord. Book bad. Green Book is terrible. It's bad, but, like, movies are bad sometimes. I don't know. I think people are being way, way extra about this. Oh, they only nominated... Wait. Producers Guild? Didn't Producers Guild used to do 10? No. I guess not. They switched to 10 uh, when Oscar switched to 10. So their five were Slumdog, Benjamin Button, Frost, Nixon, Milk, and The Dark Knight. Yeah. Yeah. So there Curse you, go. you, the reader. <laughs> all right. That's all? I think that is all. All right. This is um, a good one. Have a cold one on us. That's our episode. Our episode was the cold one. Um, if you want more of This Had Oscar Buzz, you can check out our Tumblr at thishadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. Please also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Um, Joe, tell our lovely listeners where they can find you and your things. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, spelled exactly the same way. That's I am also on both. Um, I am at Chris V file. That's F E I L on Twitter and also on letterboxd. Please um, follow our running list on letterboxd of our, this had Oscar bus titles. You will find IMDB game trivia stats for anyone who's keeping score at home and direct links to our episodes. And you can also find me at the film experience. That's the film experience.net. 
We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please, please, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Five-star review particularly helps us out with iTunes visibility. So give us the beat, boys, and free our souls. Help more folks get lost in our rock and roll. And that's all for this week. Uh, we look forward to having you back next week for more buzz. Yay! I like you.